Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. But today I'm starting a series uh, that will take us into March called Meaningless with a question mark. And uh, basically we're going to dig into the book of Ecclesiastes and just pull some gems out of that. Uh, and this is where we find this word meaningless used over and over again. Ecclesiastes, if you haven't read it, I really encourage you to do. It's not, it's not hard to get into. It's just quite bizarre in some of the things that it says. And so it's really important to understand context. Uh, so I think Ecclesiastes uh, is probably one of the most unusual books in the Bible. Uh, and I say that, I think, perhaps for good reason. Let me give you a few quotes. These won't come up on the board. Uh, but uh, here's, here's, here's a quote. Uh, Man's fate is like that of the animals. All have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the animal. Does that sound like the Bible? A bit weird, isn't it? Uh, here's another one. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Here's another one. I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat, drink and be merry. Does that sound like the Bible? Here's a strange one. Don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Show restraint. Um, Sal, you set yourself up big time for a fall right there, but anyway. Here's another one. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean. As it is with the good man, so it is with the sinner. These are really, really strange statements to find in the Bible. Would you agree? The writer of Ecclesiastes also uh, occasionally gets quite cynical and he says things like this, I declare that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Death is the destiny of every man. <laughs> Here's another pearl, sorrow is better than laughter. Because the sad face is good for the heart. <laughs> this is a bizarre perspective. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fool is in the house of pleasure. What's this all about? Uh, let me read from the start, Ecclesiastes 1 and 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. 
The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which anyone can say, look, this is something new? No, it was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and all of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. I would suggest that there is a hint of, uh, well, a hint of depression in this writing really, isn't there? It's, it's, not, it's not happy stuff. And, and I think the reason why it sounds quite depressing is because it's written by a depressed man. Um, he identifies him in verse 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. David had 19 sons. Only one of those ever became king over Jerusalem, and that was King Solomon. And even though the author doesn't identify himself in the writing, most scholars would agree, because it's so indicative throughout the writing, that it is Solomon who wrote this book. So there are three particular words or phrases that I want to help us understand this morning as we launch into this series that are really the key to understanding the perspective and help this writing make sense because you take some of those statements as standalones and you think, What's going- why is that in the Bible? What's going on with this? And these are three particular words or phrases that are repeated over and over again. The first is in verse 2 where he says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. The word meaningless throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is repeated 35 times. So he keeps coming back to this sense of it's meaningless, it's meaningless. And the reason why everything is meaningless is found in the question that he poses in verse 3. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? And that phrase, under the sun, is the second key phrase that is repeated through this book. It occurs over 32 times, either as under the sun or under heaven. In other words, what he's saying is that this is an observation of life simply as life appears to be on the surface. It is a limited perspective of viewing life Simply as the things that you can touch and taste and smell and hear and feel. Life under the sun. Life lived from this this narrow focus of how things appear to be in the natural. Again, the things that you can see evidentially. The things that you can see and touch physically. The things that you can experience. And then there's a third repeated phrase. Nine times you have the statement, it's like chasing after the wind. It's like chasing after the wind. In other words, and here's the point which helps us make sense of this book. He's saying trying to find meaning by looking at life under the sun in a purely physical material way is like try to catch the wind, to try and somehow take a hold of the wind or to capture the wind. 
And these three phrases come together in verse 14. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. And all of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. So this is Solomon's observation of life if we are just living it from a humanistic perspective that sees everything in life purely as material and physical and tangible things that there is nothing spiritual. There is no reference to anything beyond us, beyond ourselves. Nothing spiritual at all. Only that which is material. And as we're going to see over the coming weeks, he comes to these conclusions, not just by observation, but by sharing his personal experiences. So let's start off with a little bit of background to Solomon. Solomon, you've got to know, is the most successful, the most uh, famous of all of Israel's kings in all of their history. Solomon has this incredible reputation of being the wisest man to have ever lived. He has the reputation of, of being incredibly, incredibly wealthy. And he was a successful ruler. But also he is known for his deep love of God, for his deep spirituality. He was so wise in 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 34, it tells us men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. 1 Kings 10 and 14 tells us of his wealth, the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents not including the revenues from merchants and traders from all the Arabian kings and governors of the land. So his personal pay packet, without any kind of commerce or trade revenue, was 666 talents of gold. Now, uh, I looked that up. Uh, in today's money, this is about a billion dollars a year. In today's money, and he had it back then, a billion dollars a year. He was also uh, incredibly famous. 1 Kings 10 and 1, when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relation to the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And we jump down to verse 6, and this is her conclusion. She said to the king, The report I had heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw you with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report that I heard. So the Queen of Sheba is saying, Solomon, I heard all about you. And I tell you, when I heard the stuff that I heard about you, I thought, man, this is so over-exaggerated, it's not funny. So I've got to go and check this out for myself. And having come and examined it for herself, she's going, not only was that stuff true, but they didn't even tell me the half of what actually is true about you. So his reputation was incredible. He was so successful that in 1 Kings 4 and 20, it tells us the people of Judah in Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. Solomon was so successful. 
He was so powerful. He was so influential at a king, as a king that in the 40 years that Solomon reigned over Israel, Israel never, ever saw war. So for the nation of Israel under Solomon's reign, this was a time of prosperity. It was politically an incredibly stable time. So he is a great king, but at the start, he was also deeply, deeply spiritual. And we see this in uh, the way that he came to the throne. You see, when Solomon came to the throne, he had this encounter with God. And God said to him, Solomon, you can ask me for anything that you like. And I will give it to you. We pick up the story in 1 Kings 3 and 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David. Because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart, you have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I'm only a little child. I don't know how to carry up my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So we come to understand that the source of Solomon's incredible wisdom was God's. We know of Solomon that he was very creative. He wrote over 3,000 Proverbs. So the book of Proverbs, which Solomon wrote, only contains, relatively speaking, just a few of the Proverbs that he had written. He actually wrote three books that we have in our Bible, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And he wrote these at three distinct different periods in his life or different stages in his life. The Song of Solomon, I think we can guess he wrote as a young man, newly married, and it is a beautiful love story. It is a, uh, you know, it is a, a poem. It is this, this, this poetry that is incredibly, incredibly beautiful. He, he, he discovers the joy of love. And uh, he wrote this book as a young man, and it's, it's an incredible book to read. He probably wrote the book of Proverbs, maybe in his middle age. And one of the reasons we can guess that is because time and time again through the book of Proverbs, he prefaces what he's going to say with, my, with the words, my son. 
So my son, listen, and he goes on to give him his wisdom, to give him his instruction. And we have that 24 times through the book of Proverbs. My son, do this. My son, avoid that. And, and, and it's this, this great advice from a father speaking to his son. And he talks to him about wisdom. He talks to him about love and about sex. He instructs him about how to treat the poor. He talks to him and warns him about the dangers uh, of wealth. Uh, and uh, again, it, it's just this incredible book of wisdom. But then we have the book that we're looking at, which is the book of Ecclesiastes. And we have the picture that this is Solomon now as a much older man, and it seems he's quite depressed. And what has happened is this, that now as an old man, even though he walked closely with God in his younger years, he has gradually turned further and further away from God. And now he is recording his observations from a perspective where uh, God uh, is not involved. It's like these are my thoughts now, uh, musing what it would be to be totally, totally godless. And as the writing goes on, uh, God becomes increasingly absent from his life. And it seems he talks about the, this emptiness and this increasing sense of emptiness and that things are meaningless. It's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. But then there is a nagging truth and you find these little pearls, these little gems right through the book of Ecclesiastes because there's a truth that never ever leaves Solomon. Ecclesiastes 3 and 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men. And I love the way the Amplified Version renders that verse. It says he's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also planted eternity into men's hearts and minds. A divinely implanted sense of purpose working through the ages, which nothing under the sun but God alone can satisfy. And I think this is part of why Solomon seems so tormented, because he's walked away from God and every measure of success that he now enjoys, every measure of success that he has built for himself, it seems has no meaning. Why? Because God has put eternity in the hearts of man. And we need to understand what he's meaning when he writes that. Because when we, when we read of eternity through the pages of God's word, and certainly in context here, it's not talking about everlasting life. It's not just talking about immortality. That is one dimension of what eternal life means. But it's only one dimension. So uh, um, never-ending life, uh, this sense of, of life perpetuating indefinitely, is a part of what eternal life is, but it's only one part. And I want you to get a hold of this this morning. Because eternal life and immortality are not the same thing. And this is not what um, Solomon is talking about when he says God has set eternity in the hearts of man. Because if it's just about time, if it's just about uh, never-ending life, everlasting life, Solomon's actually talking about how lousy life is right now. So the appeal of everlasting life to somebody who says well life sucks right now 
It's not getting any better. So the concept of, so is the gospel about that life just going on and on and on and on and on. It's not terribly appealing, is it? And that's why, and you've got to listen carefully to this, life doesn't get more meaningful just because you live it longer. Life does not get more meaningful just because you live it longer. And friends, the pure message of the gospel is not about everlasting life. The pure message of the gospel is about eternal life. And eternal life is so much more than everlasting. Again, everlasting is about time. That's one dimension of it. Eternal life includes that. But eternal life is so much more than that. So let's listen to the words of Jesus as he tells us what eternal life is. And here it is in John 17 and 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So he's basically saying this. We were created to know God, which is exactly what Solomon echoes. Now again, it does have an everlasting component to it, but that only becomes meaningful in the context of knowing God. And friends, that's why our message as a church will never be, believe in Jesus and you go to heaven when you die. Because that's not the gospel. You've got to know the main theme of Jesus' teaching is not heaven. That is not the main theme of the New Testament. It's not the major theme of any of the four Gospels. It's not even mentioned in the book of Acts. The message of the Gospel is about knowing God. It's about being reconciled to God. Now, at the end of all that, you will go to heaven, so you can relax on that issue. But friends, what gives life its meaning is that we are designed right now to be living in relationship with God. And it starts right now. Eternal life starts right now. Eternal life does not start when you die. And that's why Paul wrote these peculiar words in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 10. Christ died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And when he says awake or asleep, he's saying whether you're living or you're dead. Christ died that we might live with him, that we might know him and we get to know him eternally. And our life actually finds its meaning in relationship with him because of him that we might live together with him. Because eternal life is not about a place. Eternal life is about a person. This is eternal life, said Jesus, that they may know God. Can I hear an amen? And this is what old disillusioned Solomon is talking about. That no matter what I'm trying to fill the gaps with in my life, it's all meaningless. And he recognizes that there is something in my heart that will never be satisfied outside of being in right relationship with God. C.S. Lewis, who is an amazing, amazing writer, one of his greatest books, Mere Christianity, he writes these words. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. 
Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. I find my, I find, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. How cool is that? In the 5th century, uh, the great theologian uh, Augustine wrote these words. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Friends, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl has within them, whether they recognize it in these terms or not, an appetite that can only be filled by a relationship with God. And there will be a restlessness until we find him. And we will be trying to fill that void with all kinds of Jesus substitutes that will never, ever, ever satisfy. And as we'll see in coming weeks, Solomon tried to fill that gap with all kinds of different things. And the good thing about this book is that as he explores all of these avenues, as he writes all of these sobering comments about a humanistic view of life, it would appear that by the end of the book, he comes to his senses and draws back to God. And I love this about Ecclesiastes, that it's a very real, very raw book from a man who had turned away from God. But now he's brought back and he says some great things which we'll dig into. He says things like, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And at the very end, he says, you know, this is the whole duty of man, fear God and keep his commandments. And uh, it's, it's a great story. And friends, I don't know where you're at this morning. It may be that there are some here and these words that we hear of Solomon's where he says it's all meanings, it's chasing after the wind, you know. Uh, maybe for some of us, we, it's just like, hey man, I just feel like I'm, I'm looking in a mirror this morning. That, that those words are just reflecting the state of my heart, that this is me. So if that is you, and I'm going to invite the team to come back. What do you need to do about that? How do you resolve that? Well, well, Solomon actually does give the answer. And he says, remember your creator. He says, get back to God. Get back to God. And, and again, on the basis of what this book tells us, I think we can make that great assumption that he actually did before it was too late. And, and I, 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 I don't think it's drawing a, you know, too long a bow to suggest this morning that there are people in this room and you are pursuing all kinds of other things. Because you know there's a restlessness within, there is a void within, and I'm trying to fill it with all this kind of stuff, and it's just not working. I would also suggest, and again, I don't think it's too long a bow to draw, that there's some of us filling our lives with stuff that nobody else knows anything about, but it's your little crutch, and you keep going back to it. And you're pursuing them over and over and over and over and over again because you're trying to find some kind of meaning, some kind of satisfaction, some kind of pleasure, some kind of lasting significance. But as you chase all of those things, you still go to bed at night and you kind of stare up at the ceiling and you go, you know what? That certainly didn't work. And yet how bizarre it is that we wake up the next day and we launch into all the same routines and all the same habits and pursue all the same stuff, wrongly thinking that perhaps tomorrow is going to be different. 
Friends, if that's you this morning, you need to know God in His fullness. You need to know Jesus in His fullness. Maybe you identify with the words meaningless, meaningless, and we're just on this treadmill that just goes round and round and round. It's one of those, you know, the things that mice run in, those wheel things. And you just think, man, when does this ever change? When does it ever end? When do I ever get off this thing? Friends, there is an eternity in your heart that can only be filled by God. And we've simply got to open up our hearts to the reality of who God is. That says, I have set eternity in your heart. And remember, eternity is about knowing God. It's not about living forever. Part of it, but ultimately it's about knowing God. Knowing the hope and the purpose that comes as you begin to connect with God. As you say in all honesty, God, I'm so far from you. I'm so distant from you. To recognize there's a whole bunch of stuff in our lives that becomes obstacles between us and God. And, and what we understand of God is maybe, well, God's this holy God. He's a good God or something. And I recognize there's so much junk in my life that just kind of doesn't cut it. So why would a good, guy, good God be interested in somebody like me when there's my life such a mess? And here's the really, really cool thing. God just reaches out to you right where you're at. And He says, man, I just love you so much. And the reason your life is a mess, the reason there's so much dissatisfaction, the reason you, you can echo with those words, meaningless, meaningless, is simply because you haven't found that source of ultimate meaning, which is understanding who God is and the context with which I need to live my life in relationship with Him. And I've got to tell you, it is a relationship with God that brings the right perspective. It's a relationship with God that helps make sense of my life. It's a relationship with God that, 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 that spurs me on to want to make a difference. It's my relationship that, with God that wants to make me a, a better man. And implants a desire within me to better myself, that I'll be a better man, a better husband, a better father. Don't always get it right, but that's the wonderful patience of God. And that's part of that journey of God growing us and God working together with us. But we just got to come to that place of honestly saying, saying, God, here I am. I might be a mess, but I believe as I reach out to you and, and take a hold of all that you have for me. As I receive your love, as I receive your grace, as I receive your forgiveness, forgiveness that's available to us because Jesus hung on a cross and died for you to take the penalty of your sin, to clothe you with his righteousness. And it's that that makes you acceptable before God. To just say, God, I'm sick of the way that I'm, being, I'm living it. It is meaningless, meaningless. And I, I just got to turn around. I got to do a 180. I got to turn back to you. And the Bible has a word for that. It's called to repent. It's just a changing of mind, a changing of position. This is eternal life, that you may know God and that you might know His Son, Jesus Christ. And that, friends, is the invitation of the gospel.